Well, it's our privilege this morning to turn back in the study of God's Word to Romans chapter 12, and we're looking this morning at verse 9 in particular, and this message is uh, heavy on my own heart, thinking about the implications of this text and considering the days in which we live. We are challenged in so many different ways, pressed to have to operate in a kind of wisdom, a wisdom which demonstrates, as Jesus has said, that we are to be in this world, we are to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. The ability to walk in such wisdom is tested each and every day, and part of me wonders if the average Christian is ready for the challenges. And I hope to demonstrate the kind of landscape before us as we work our way through this text this morning. Thinking particularly um, as we cover the themes in our text, or our text is Romans twelve nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. This morning we're going to talk about evil. We're going to talk about the presence of evil that is around us. And in talking about evil, I recognize that I'm going to have to call out and use particular terms. And I just encourage you at this point, if uh, you have little ones and you don't necessarily want to explain to them certain technical terms, maybe you would want to slip out at some point. You're free. Particularly when you get to the point when you hear about Alaska Airlines, you know what comes next. You say, how in the world does Alaska Airlines slip in there? Well, just wait. You will see as we get into this text. But I'm just burdened particularly about the, the presence of evil and the practice around us and how we navigate through it. And particularly, I'm thinking about the how the Christian prepares himself before he faces the challenge. How well are we thinking through the nuances of the difficulties that our present evil age is subtly slipping in? And will we be prepared on that day when we have to stand up, when we have to be able to proclaim the truth or to commit ourselves to a certain practice? Will we be prepared in that time? I'm reminded in a season like this, coming to a text like this, that as we minister the truth, whether publicly in a pulpit like this or privately as we are interacting with friends and family, somewhere in our lives we're going to face a crossroad where somebody is going to be offended no matter what you say. You either are going to offend a wicked person who is trying to hold on to their sin or you're going to offend the righteous as they're trying to preserve godliness. The two worlds, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, are in opposition to each other. They are diametrically opposed. You cannot have a foot in both worlds and bring peace. They are against each other, moving away from each other, hostile to one another. And at some point in our lives, we are going to face that challenge. I dread even thinking about this particular text and the things that I have written here that I know would be an offense fact, we have been reminded at different points, we use certain streaming services and those streaming services to communicate to the body as they are unable to attend. Those streaming services have their list of practices and what their values are. And the values prevented, are presented in the scripture go against those values and already we have been marked against and certainly down the road we will be marked again and potentially shut out entirely. In those moments, it's the challenge. What do you communicate? Do you communicate what God has said, or do you communicate in a way that embraces the world, but offends the church? 
These are the challenges we face. It reminded me of a time, just as I'm thinking and heading into this tax, I reminded me of the time as my kids had grown up and got ready to head off to college. And I remember meeting with them months before they were heading off to college as they were leaving the safety and shelter of our home life, as they were leaving, leaving uh, mom and dad's protection and counsel You know, no longer would I have a watchful eye on them, able to observe their friend choices and able to observe how they were using their time. They were about to head out into the world on the other side of the country. In fact, they went to the opposite end of the United States to get entirely away from us. And as they were on the opposite end of the country in the West Coast, I knew as they headed away, they would begin to reveal what was in their heart. Did they love the things we loved? Did they delight in the things that we delighted in? Were their convictions their own convictions or were they borrowed convictions of mom and dad? Were they embracing these things because they wanted peace at home, but once they got out, they would choose something different? And I had to prepare my own heart as a father. What if indeed... My children decided, we don't want your ways, Dad. We don't want the restrictions. We don't want the limitations. We don't want the convictions and values. We don't believe what you believe. What if that's what God decided in the moment to reveal? How would I respond? Instead of waiting for the unknown to happen, I decided to preemptively lay out the lines to my kids. And remind them, you may go off this way. And if you did go off this way, I want you to understand exactly where I am at. That if you decided to embrace the culture's values and the culture's system and and adopted the culture's ideology and the culture's definition of love, I want you to understand that's not what the scriptures teach. Here's our line. Here's my line. So that if you move beyond that line, well, then you're on your own. And what you've chosen at that point is, I'm not there. I'm not there to support you. I'm not there to encourage you. I'm not there to be a part of that because you've gone beyond what God has said. Abandon it and moved on into your own choices. Now, in that moment, that is a heavy conversation for a dad to have with Two children are getting ready to head out into the world. But more and more, it is a kind of conversation that Christian parents are going to need to have with their kids because the days are evil and the challenges are coming. And I hope as we illustrate through this text to make you aware of the challenges that we have before us. There going to be a time at some point in our life where you are going to have to say something and no matter which way you go, you're going to offend. The question is this, do you know what side you have to land on? Our text starts to give us that in Romans 12. Paul lays out what a godly perspective of love looks like. He lays out for us what it is that we are to believe and what we are to practice, and he he ministers to us like a loving father ministers. He could have been a drill sergeant and just given us 30 commands directly and just repeatedly commanded us over and over again. He doesn't do that. He implies at times commands. He, He encourages us, us, speaking of in the present tense of what we're regularly practicing And then he gives some commands within this that carries us. And as I said last week, he gives us about 30 different imperatives in these verses from verse 9 through verse 21. Along the way, encouraging us, exhorting us, building us up so that we would be strengthened to have a proper biblical mindset, a mindset of love. Now last week, I was gently encouraged that I was on the very negative side 
It'd be nice to be on the positive side. So let me start this week on positive expressions of love. If last week we looked at what hypocritical love would look like. Well, this week, just to start quickly, let me point out to you what a genuine love would look like. Paul says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. There are at least four identifying factors of a genuine love. The first is this, genuine love is evidenced in a sincere love for others. A sincere love. You know, it's not easy to serve. It's not easy to exercise your spiritual gift to minister to somebody else. It's not easy to exhort or to teach, to to prepare for that. It's not easy to pour yourself out to labor for another. That isn't easy. And yet, it is genuine love on display when you give yourself to the service of others. You build up and encourage and edify And when you rejoice in seeing them strengthened, you rejoice in seeing that they are being transformed by the truth, all of that genuine love seeks the best interest of another. I was thinking about this. What is the best example of a genuine love? And I would say it comes down into a mother's service. And think about a mom, all she goes through. Bears a little child. A little child comes into the world. That little child is oblivious to anything else but its immediate want and desire. Keeps mom up at night, wakes mom up regularly throughout the night, demands from mom attention. Can't communicate to mom exactly what that attention is, what might be tiredness, might also be gas, might also be hungry. We don't know what it is. Mom is having to investigate to search it all out. Mom anticipates the needs. Mom cares for the child, grooms the child, comforts the child. Mom interacts with the child the whole time. Mom is pouring herself out as she is caring for that child. She has gained weight, feeling then inadequate. She is tired, feeling overwhelmed. She is distracted, feeling disconnected from the rest of her friends. She has poured out her life for those kids, and she does it tirelessly, sacrificially. That's genuine love. Love that is not being a... Doing it for selfish gain, love that is caring and giving of itself entirely. This is genuine love, modeled. So genuine love has the sincere care for others for the other's best interest and invests itself to its own cost so that others would be strengthened and built up. And secondly, genuine love is evidenced in purity. Genuine love operates and is evidenced in purity. We walk in the light, not in the darkness. We are, you know, God is light, an unapproachable light. His ways are righteous and good. And love operates, it operates in such a way that it always encourages purity. It strengthens purity. It rejoices in what is pure. It rejoices in that which is holy, just, and good. Love doesn't joke about evil. Love is not crass. Love is not operating in such a way that it becomes sensual. Love is genuinely protecting what is holy, righteous, and good. It operates in the context of purity. Genuine love produces purity, produces holiness and righteousness. This is why it's just absolutely a lie when a young person you know, seeking a relationship with another young person says, well, I desire these things because I love you. No, you lust her. You don't love her. For love protects. Love produces purity and holiness. Thirdly, a genuine love is consistently optimistic. And I take this from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7 when Paul says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is consistently and persistently optimistic. Looking for the best, trusting in God's marvelous work, that God's grace is going to conquer and God's mercy would be evident. And love is anchored in God and his rich power and work, trusting in what God is has revealed in his scripture and is optimistic that the good things are going to come out, that God is going to demonstrate the riches of his glory. And again, this isn't uh, uh, 
you know, ignoring evil. This isn't overlooking unrighteousness. This is certainly calling out and confronting what is unrighteous, but then trusting and believing that God can do the work to transform the sinner. We know that. We just have to look at our own lives. Yes, we've been rebellious. Yes, we've fallen short. Yes, we have sinned against the living God. He has forgiven us and caused us to turn, and he is working within us to transform us. So a genuine love is a consistently optimistic love that looks for the power and grace of God to be on display. Hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. This is the love that we operate in. And one more truth, the genuine love for others is not opportunistic, but selfless. We're not loving others for our own personal gain. We are loving to lay down ourselves for others' best interest. Turn back to Romans 5, because Paul makes this clear in Romans 5, giving us the example of God's great love. And again, if Jesus Christ entered this world and demonstrated love for his own personal gain, if he was using it for uh, using love for an opportunistic situation that he would gain advantage, then he would have come into the world, accepted Satan's temptations, made head over all of the world. That's not what he did. Romans 5, starting in verse 6 and following, Paul describes the marvelous work of Christ and the love of God. He says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Selfless, sacrificial, laying himself down for the unlovely, the unrighteous. It wasn't personal gain, it was selfless sacrifice. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. God reconciled us through Jesus Christ to himself. Christ's love was selfless, sacrificial. He laid himself down to rescue us, to rescue the sinners. We don't love, again, to gain advantage. We don't love to put somebody in debt. We don't love in order to, uh, to lift up our own glory. We love richly to bless others, to show others the riches of God's grace. And what's amazing about that in regards to our love, you can turn back to Romans 12, verse 9, that what's amazing about this is that God tests our heart in this. He tests our love. He tests it all the time. He tests the quality of our love and how we love one another. When the church is small, God tests us. Will you still love me? When the church is large, he still tests us. Will you love me? When people resist you, he tests, will you love me? When you have abundance and then you lose it, he tests you, will you still love me? When you don't get what you want, he still tests us, do you still love me? And when you get everything you want, he still tests, do you love me? Do you have a genuine love, a righteous love that is without hypocrisy? That was the first imperative that Paul gives. We were to exercise this kind of genuine love. But now, in the rest of the verse, he gives us two more exhortations. Reject evil, cling to good. Two more exhortations that he gives us. And let's look at this. Reject evil. Literally, he says, abhor what is evil. Again, I've been thinking through that phrase, 
abhor what is evil. Because as this world around us is, is constantly pulling in different directions, we are tested in it all the time to ask, what, where are we going to land? What are we going to believe and practice? And even as I said, as I was instructing my own kids in the process, I was reminding them of the line, here is the evil, the line in which I cannot cross into. I cannot go into that world, into that practice, because it is against not only the fabric of my convictions, but of the purpose of which I am called. I was struck by this phrase, and as I said, thinking about it for a long time, I remember the first time it really jumped out to my attention was back in 2007 when I was getting ordained. My mentor, Phil Johnson, had flown out from California. He'd landed in Fort Lauderdale, and he was driving up from Fort Lauderdale to Jupiter to sit in my ordination council. And as he was driving up and he was looking around, he saw billboards and he saw other places of business and these billboards had adult services and adult clubs around, all advertised. Many of them were on the way. If you've been in that area, you see them, they're prevalent. I've lived there by that time for multiple years, so I was familiar with them. I just had pushed them out of my you know, vision, out of my sight, ignored them. To which he came in, and he was shocked by their very presence, shocked that they were around and had asked, are you aware of all these, these advertisements, etc.? And it made me aware at that moment, we live in a world that is active in its demonstration of evil, its demonstration of corruption. Evil is no longer contented, hiding in the darkness. It is pushing itself into the very light, and it's becoming more and more evident. I read an article this week out of the Washington Post, which is saying that various uh, CVS stores in Washington, D.C. are having to be closed because packs of teenagers are gathering together and coming in of up to 45 of them, charging into the store, stripping the shelves bare, and fleeing out. Flash mobs of thievery are being committed regularly. Culture is emboldened young people. You deserve this because corporations are evil, so go steal this and take it. There's more. Evil's around us in so many ways. Our, inner, our own entertainment is challenging us to embrace evil. Social media is in challenging us to embrace evil. Think about the number of times when you watch a movie or you watch a TV show and you start analyzing the characters like you would analyze your own life or someone else. And you start analyzing their convictions and their values. Before you know it and you watch the show, you, re- you recognize that the writers are creating within you a sympathy for a particular character. They want you to cheer on that character's virtues and values and worldview and system so that you begin to root for that particular hero. And then you look at the family within that show that has your values, your convictions, and typically it's a dopey father and a mother who is angry at something. Well, so I am to love the world's values because that looks peaceful, enjoyable, but then the Christian values, that is outdated, cold, and indifferent. Our entertainment is pushing us to move away from convictions. Our sports heroes are flawed. You can't look to your sports heroes any longer. Baseball had its steroids era. NFL has had its domestic abuse cases. The NBA has had their series of trials and difficulties. You look around and the sports heroes and the various worlds they live in and you recognize their flaws. Our politicians are no less uh, influenced by evil. They have become more and more professional politicians, avoiding questions, lying regularly. A website on by the government called oversight.house.gov, which is the account, oversight and accountability in the government, 
website has documented 15 cases of when our sitting, our present sitting president has lied. Regularly, lying, normally as a normal practice. Politicians lie to get their positions. They sell out their particular votes. It's all around us. And since we're throwing rocks, let me point your attention to businesses. It was disconcerting to me a couple weeks ago when I sat down and ordered plane tickets to go to Alaska this May for my son's wedding. And literally, the very next day after I purchased the tickets, the very next day in the headlines was an Alaska Airlines door popped out of the jet. (laughs) And I was like, I should have bought that trip insurance right there. (laughs) And then from that time on, for the next two weeks, it's pointing back and forth. What was the cause of this? Where did the problem come from? Is it a subcontractor's problem? Is it Boeing's problem? Is it Alaska Airlines' problem? Who's at fault in all of this? And what we learned in the process is that there was shoddy work. There was deadlines to be met. There was bolts not tightened down, engineering not completed. There was skipping of safeguards all in order to meet the deadlines. And what you had within corporate greed was the attempt to get, uh, get out the product so they can make the resources they wanted made. It's evil everywhere. Instead of loving your neighbor and personally sacrificing to your own cost to provide a safe and secure product, it doesn't matter, this will work, just get it out there. We have the next deadline to meet. There's more. Family is being attacked. Again, evil is all around us. The LGBTQ plus movement has brought in all of her evil sisters. Polygamy, polyamory, Pedophilia, prostitution, and these are just the P's. You had all the other practices of evil that come with this system. And literally, again, just this week, an article came out in the Wall Street Journal. And in the article, here is the article's title. Consensual, non-monogamy, ethical polyamory. The terms are oxymoronic. I mean, it's like saying ethical adultery. It's an oxymoron. In the article, the writer quotes Molly Winter, who wrote a book that has just been published entitled More, subtitled A Memoir of Open Marriage. In which she describes how she, as a mom, has desires, and those desires must be satisfied. And she wanted this open marriage, and she now lives with her boyfriend and her husband in the same house, and she defends this lifestyle. And in the midst of this, Molly believes that the reason why people have a problem with this lifestyle is because moms are supposed to be selfless. Her desire is now to write this particular book to demonstrate it's time for moms to get what they want. This article came out in multiple different places that you can find within the journal article. The author investigating the story writes this. The author says, The book published this month has received so much attention, much good and some judgy, that when I called her husband... Stuart Winter, for an interview and asked how he was, he blurted this out. I'm losing my will to live. I read that side by side. On one hand, one who is saying, I'm having the time of my life. I'm getting everything I want. Finally, I'm free and I'm reading the spouse. I want to die. Welcome to the world of polygamy. Polyamory, to consensual, non-monogamy, ethical polyamory. The world is pulling on us to say this is right, and this is good, and this is upright. You can find exactly what you want. Later in the article, the author goes on to state that 
Stuart also has multiple other relationships. The point is that we can look around and we can see evil everywhere. It's in our politics. It's in our sports. It's in our entertainment. It's in our business. It's in our families. It's even in the church. Church has been corrupted. Church is also has divorce rates that are similar to the world. Polity practices immorality. Leaders are greedy, full of ambition, lusty, social media darlings, supposing that they are reaching the world while they are becoming like the world. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. So that when we come to a passage like this, abhor what is evil, what in the world does that even look like? What does it look like to abhor what is evil when evil is literally everywhere? Everywhere we look, everywhere we turn our eyes, it's coming upon us in some way. Kevin DeYoung in his book entitled The Whole in Our Holiness said this, You know from living in this world that sexual immorality is a huge problem. I don't have to convince you that we live in a culture flooded with sex. You can find it in stores and songs and sports, on billboards, on the beach, on the movie screen, on YouTube, on Hulu, on your iPhone, in the mall, in catalogs, in car magazines, and just about everywhere else you look. It is everywhere. Sex sells. It entertains comforts, it draws the attention, the hearts and minds. So we come to a text like this then, abhor what is evil. The question is, what should our perspective be? The word abhor here in verse 9 is a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. The only time it's used is right here. And a lexical definition implies this. It means to be totally adverse to something. That it's repugnant, that something is loathsome, you strongly resist it. And I thought to myself, well, what would this necessarily look like? How would I know that I have this kind of natural repulsion to evil? I thought the best illustration is something like this. Imagine a food you dislike. In my mind, I'm thinking oatmeal, but you might have a different mind. Imagine a food or imagine a smell. That kind of smell that when it comes is just utterly repulsive. That's the idea here, that when evil springs up, it has that same natural, visceral response that comes up. I am repulsed by this, pushed back, shocked by it. You know what that's like when your little child has that diaper, you're just, the eyes water, you know. That's the idea here. Evil is repulsive. Be repulsed, abhor it. It is against. Repulsed. The word evil in this particular text, the word translated as evil is used 78 times in the New Testament. It is referring to a moral evil. Certainly it can be referenced at times evil persons who lack morals, but the emphasis primarily on this is the principle of evil, the principle of wickedness. That is the emphasis here. And it says this, we are to abhor that which is of wickedness, unrighteousness, that which is evil. Now, some have taken the phrase abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, and they've combined it together. Combine, combining these two phrases with this kind of idea. If you have a sinner, let's say a liar, you, you hate the lie, but you love the liar. You know, you hate the adultery, but you love the adulterer. So you, you love what is good, but you resist and hate what is evil. But that's not what's presented here. That would be in a masculine form here. Abhor what is evil in someone Literally, all that Paul is concerned about here is the ideology, the, pra- the idea. Abhor the evil ideology, the evil practice. He's not talking about what individuals do. He's talking about their belief system, their practices, their ideologies. 
And what he is saying here is that we need to operate in such a way that we can identify evil ideas, evil practices, evil ideologies, and resist them. We are not drawn into them, embracing them, because they're evil. Their corruption comes. Zondervan, exegetical commentator, states it as this. Says the believer's renewed mind and transformed existence should reveal itself in love that is not mere display, in a genuine inner revulsion at what is evil and a heartfelt alignment in what is good. The practice that we operate as Christians is in this world that is operating around us in wickedness, we are able to spot and identify that which is evil and are resistant to it not drawn in, entertained by it, rejoicing in it, joking in it, but we have this natural aversion. We understand it for what it is, a corruption. We don't praise evil. We pour it. That's why I said we're operating in an increasingly difficult age where we're being tested on these things. Recently, a famous pastor got himself into trouble in this very area. When he was in a counseling situation and the counselor, counselee came to him and asked him whether or not she should attend the wedding of a grandson who was marrying a trans woman. And as he was ministering to her, now he has a dilemma. Either he says, yes, go, offending the church, or he says, no, stay, offending the family. He's in a difficult spot. He, of course, chose the go-ahead and attend, of which the particular firestorm came out of it. The question would be, how do we abhor what is evil in a day and age when everyone is pulling towards unrighteousness? What does genuine love look like any longer? I simply want to put on your radar screen this. We are going to have to begin to think carefully and articulate carefully where our stances are before they come up. Because if we wait until the day that the difficulty comes to respond, your message and your practices are going to be confused. How do we abhor what is evil when everything around us is demonstrating wickedness? This is a good question. How do we live in this world but not be of this world? I just want to point out to you Um, A couple of passages, but turn over to Ephesians 2. I just want to point out to you one idea in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, to try to, or 1 through 3, just to try to clarify this. Paul says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, notice, according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, and among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here's what Paul describes. He says, this is what, this is what your former life was. Before faith in Christ, before you had turned to him, you lived in this world and you operated again, verse 2, according to the course of this world. What is he talking about there when he uses the phrase world? He's not talking about the physical planet. He's not talking about this earth, this globe. He's not talking about creation. He's talking about an ideological system which he goes on and describes, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about an ideological system that's opposed to God. We live in a constant state of where we live on God's creation as his created beings, able to reflect his glory, created in his image, see his divine glory and power around, and yet at the same time under attack of a worldly system that's trying to draw us away from God. We live in that. 
So how do we live in this world but not of this world? Well, first of all, this. We acknowledge the power and the glory of God that is evident all around us. Just as Psalm 97 indicates, the whole world sees the glory of God. Romans, two tell, Romans 1 tells us the same thing, that God's invisible attributes are on display in creation. So we can look at creation, acknowledge the parts that demonstrate God's glory, and we can give glory to that. Same thing, I, I can look at any human, in, any person, no matter what their ideological beliefs and practices, any person, no matter who they voted for, any person, no matter what they've practiced, and know that person was created in the image of God. And I can give praise to that. But I don't have to give praise to an ideological system that's against the ways of God. I don't have to believe that that practice is righteous, that practice is good, that that practice is loving, that that practice is healthy. I don't have to believe or embrace that ideological system. I can continue to preach what God has said. In the world, acknowledging God's glory around, but not of the world, confronting the ideology that works against the living God. What leads us to not hate Evil. You can turn back to Romans 12, but, or actually turn over to 1 John 2. What leads us to not hate evil? Why, do we, why are we giving into it so readily? Well, there's a couple things. John tells us here in 1 John 2, 5 through, 15 through 17, why it is that we struggle with worldliness. John tells us, do not love the world nor the things in the world. And again, this is where I think he goes back and forth between a earthly, uh, or between an ideological system and the physical world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Why are we resistant to hating evil? Because it draws on our fleshly passions. Lust of the flesh, that is our passions and desires. The lust of the eyes, that is the greed within the heart. The boastful pride of life, that is one's pride. These areas make us vulnerable to engage in and embrace worldliness. John tells us. But it's also true that we don't hate evil as we should because we don't really fear God as we ought to. We don't fear his judgment. We don't fear his, our accountability to him, that one will have to give an account to the living God. We resist. Turn over to 1 Peter 4. You see this in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 5. When Peter says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. Notice this. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter contrasts. Here's the world with its desires, pulling you into its desires. He says your past life was sufficient. You've done enough in your past life for that. It is over. But remember, this time is coming where he is going to come and judge, who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Why do we get drawn into evil? It's because our hearts have been hardened against the warnings of God's pending judgment. Why do we give in to evil? One more, because of unbelief. We just don't believe what the word of God says. I thought about it. How many times, how many people would drop out of, of preaching and teaching if they just believed the message of James 3.1? 
Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur, in this phrase, a stricter judgment. Not just judgment, but a stricter judgment, a higher judgment because of all the ones you've influenced. How many, if they believed that very message, would just be quiet and not say anything at all and save themselves grief? Or as Matthew's gospel records, Jesus saying, I say to you that every, this is terrifying, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Every word, every statement. Unbelief hardens our hearts, thinking that it's not going to happen. That's why we engage in evil. I'll turn back to Romans 12, because i got to finish on a positive. That was a negative. Abhor, don't do that. Don't give in to evil. Practice you know, resisting evil, training your own heart to be resistant to evil so that it is a, a repulsion to you. But on a positive side, then he says, cling to what is good. Cling to it. The idea, and this is, is be joined to good, united to it. It speaks of the intimacy of marriage. Be united and joined to what is good. And the idea of our union with Christ, it is good. We are joined together, intimately joined. We're intimately joined to that which is morally upright and pure and good and righteous. To hold tightly to it, to be united and embraced with. Find ourselves clinging to that which is upright. And I'm reminded when I think about that, it is exactly the words that Paul had said to the Philippians in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And now it's this phrase, I think is the qualifier. How do I know that something's good? How do I know when something is upright? How do I know when it's truly identified with true, pure, lovely, etc.? And he gives this result. And the peace of God shall be with you. It produces peace. The peace of God. The peace, again, that surpasses understanding. The peace that identifies you are right with God. Dwell on these things, cling to what's good, cling to what is right. It brings with it peace. Evil promises joy, it promises pleasure, it promises life, it promises you entertainment, it promises you, promises you excitement, only to bring misery, only to bring a desire to end it all, only to bring destruction. Where, on the other hand, righteousness bears forth the fruits of righteousness that brings peace, brings stability and joy. Thinking about this, I noticed that John Wesley's mother wrote to her son to encourage him on the pursuit of holiness. Miss Wesley, in her advice to her son, John Wesley, wrote this. She said, Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures the sense of God, or takes off the relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength, the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be. Guard against, she's saying, guard against, John. Guard against anything that would pull you away from having a genuine affection for godliness. Cling to what is good. Hold on firmly to it. Again, we live in a day and age where evil is literally all around us. It can even creep into the church. 
But we are protected and preserved by the message of God's Word. We are comforted and renewed and being transformed into His very image. Every time we come and listen to the truth, every time we open up the Scriptures and read, every time we are praying, we are being transformed from glory to glory into His image and preserved and protected by God. We hold on to these exhortations because they are protections for us. We hold on to them and, and measure one another by them so as to stimulate one another onto love and good deeds because they guard us from the evil one, from destruction. That's the first three exhortations. We'll pick up more next week. Let me just encourage you, brethren, think carefully about the evil days ahead. Plan wisely, prepare your heart to be able to resist evil because, again, this is Paul's exhortation to us. Resist evil, cling to what's good. Let's pray. Father, we desire to have a high regard for holiness, a high regard for righteousness, not because we're righteous or because righteousness begins with us or originates with us, not because we are proud of our efforts or sacrifices, simply because you are holy and you are righteous and your seed produces righteousness. And as you work within us, you work and you transform our hearts and minds and you renovate our entire lives, taking our thoughts to think heavenly things, causing us to love without hypocrisy and be resistant to evil and to cling to righteous and good things. You produced that within us. It was not something that we intimidated one another to do. It was not something that we manipulated one another to do. It is something that you produced within us with your marvelous work. You've shown us love and modeled it in your example called us to love as you explained your path of love and you have set before us the righteous path as your word has operated as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path so that we know which way to go but even more we have experienced as we have yielded in faith to the truth we have experienced your rich love upon us and we have seen you validate over and over again the truthfulness of your message where we've experienced peace in the midst of calamity and we have rejoiced in healthy relationships and we've seen your grace on display as you've taken broken lives and restored them. So we ask in this study, strengthen our faith and our courage. Give us opportunities to demonstrate the riches of your love and wisdom. Protect us from an evil one who would seek to oppose and resist the the way of righteousness and cause us to look to heavenly things, not earthly things, so that we wouldn't be vulnerable to give in to fears and to give in to idolatries and anything else. May we guard one another in genuine love and protection, guard one another from being pulled away from the love of God. Thank you for this time together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.